Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 3-287 of the Run Run Live podcast. Well, my friends, here we are. With any luck, I'll be pushing this show out on the Friday before the 2014 Boston Marathon, or should I say the international melodramatic media circus that has replaced the Boston Marathon. Let me stop right here and tell you that the first version of this intro was a whiny negative speech about how my version of the Boston Marathon, that was a very special, sacred, personal thing to me, had been hijacked by clueless international media a-holes. But bitterness is not how I want to roll. So, let's back that up and ask a different question. What's going to be good about this year's Boston Marathon? What, beyond all the distasteful and idiotic mellow... Sorry, back that up. What will this year's race mean to us? And how will it positively impact the world? By the way, I left the original text in the show notes if you really need a good wine. And if you were subscribed to my email list, you would have it in your inbox. What's going to be good about this year's race is that the attention of the world will be focused on our sport and our community and our premier event. The world will get a glimpse of the running community that I know. They might get to see the heroes of my life that have very little to do with bombs and deaths. These are the people that I've shared the roads of New England with for the last 20 years. Through 20 long, cold winters, we plied our craft on our roads, by our seashores, up our mountains, and around our islands. Look closely. You may see the old veterans with their calm, ironic smiles, relaxing in the field at Hopkinton High. Their faces are wan and hollow, and hardened by long miles in the early morning in the biting cold. And they come here because they can. They come here because there just happens to be a local marathon in April. Not because it's some monumental or overblown apparition. These are my friends. These are my quiet heroes, engineers, teachers, artists. And yes, if the opportunity arises, men and women of insurmountable courage and valor. They come to this point not to prove anything. They come into this thing because it is sacred to us, and we respect it, and we do our best to honor it. With any luck, a small parcel of luck, the frothing International Press Corps will get a glimpse of my heroes, and they will take that with them from this year's race, and we will change the world just by being who we are and doing what we do. It's going to be a long day for me. I'm not in the kind of shape I should be to respect this race and this distance. I'm still pretty beat up, 
But over the last eight weeks, I have focused on becoming less fragile and more flexible. These efforts, combined with my knowledge of the course and my experience, should get me across the line with a modicum of well-deserved suffering. People have started to gather in the city. The streets are lined with media trucks. I've been fending off blog and media requests for a couple weeks for comments. It doesn't seem right. It feels like we're having a rugby party in a church. I don't know what I expect. I'm sure this ennoi is a personal problem. Different people grieve in different ways. There's no rule book. Different people celebrate in different ways. There's no rules. Today... We will be having a follow-up chat with Zoe Romano, who ran a Tour de Force on the Tour de France course last year. See what I did there? It's a fascinating discussion with a person who, as we know, has a deep inner strength. In Section 1, I'll talk about my 5 a.m. life hack project. (laughs) And in Section 2, we'll talk some more about the Boston Marathon. Let's get this party started. On with... The show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. The 5 a.m. life hack. What I have learned. I had mentioned last time we talked that I was experimenting with a new life hack to see if I can squeeze some more juice out of this life. Simply put, I decided to get up early every morning. I know, many of you already do this. I do too, in a way, but I don't do it consistently, and I don't have it as a habit or a routine. I know from experience that you can't try to do too much at the same time, so I just decided to get up at 5 a.m. every day and see what happened. On a normal day, I'm usually up between 6 and 7 o'clock. My routine is to get some oatmeal and coffee started, let out the dog, then go take a shower, get dressed. When I'm cleaned up, I sit down at my desk, I eat my oatmeal, drink some coffee, check my email and other incoming electronic challenges, and this usually lasts for an hour or so, and then I'll pack up and drive into my office, if I'm working from my office. Some days I'll work from home, especially if I've got early morning calls. If I've stayed up late or had some crazy travel, I might sleep in to 7 or even 8 o'clock, Most days, I really don't need to be anywhere. My schedule is not rigorously set or tied to an office. I'm basically available 24 by 7 by email or cell phone if there's something that needs attention, but I don't have to be anywhere. I have the additional challenge of work travel. This means I'm getting up at 4 a.m. some days to make a flight and not getting into the airport some nights until well after midnight. And these abnormalities pretty much blow up any regular sleep schedule during the week. I also have to deal with time zone changes and jet lag. I may be on the West Coast one day, where my 5 a.m. is your 2 a.m. Or I might be in Europe, where your 5 a.m. is my midnight. And it all gets very jumbled, and I end up sleeping where and when I can. I do a lot of sleeping, or at least napping, on airplanes. Sometimes I just go without sleep. I can usually manage on adrenaline for two or three or four days before I have to crash and catch up. But I felt like I wasn't getting the most out of my day, and I wasn't getting to things that were important to me. 
I wasn't getting them done, like self-development projects that I believe are necessary to lead a happy and fulfilling life. So I decided to create the habit of getting up at 5 a.m. every day and working on some personal and self-development tests. I wanted to create a consistent and predictable habit and see what it did to my life. So I'm a couple of weeks in, but it has been a worthwhile learning experience. What I found was that if I let myself sleep in, I spend the day reacting to things and never get any forward-looking or strategically important projects done. These are the things that will get you ahead and will get you closer to your personal goals. I also knew from previous experiments that I couldn't just get up earlier and sleep less. It's pointless to stay up until midnight and then try to get up and be creative at 5 in the morning. For me, some people can do it. I have never been able to. I knew if I was going to consistently get out of bed, I'd have to get into bed consistently at a reasonable time in the evening. And this is where the 5 a.m. habit becomes one of those keystone habits that we talked about. As soon as I committed to a 5 a.m. rise and shine, a bunch of other habits started to fall into place. I started planning and wanting to get into bed by 9 o'clock. Is 8 hours the right number? I don't know. But it seemed like a reasonable guess and a way to not give myself an excuse to sleep in during the burn-in phase of the habit. It turns out that the time after 9 p.m. was time that I usually just spent watching TV and eating or drinking beer. It was a chunk of time that was too small for me to do anything useful. At the end of the day, I was tired and brain dead, so I defaulted to sitting on the couch. It was wasted time that I really don't miss. As a keystone habit change, look what happened. Since I was no longer sitting on the couch and watching TV for an hour or so, I also wasn't eating a sandwich or drinking a beer. Instead, I'd find myself close to 9 o'clock in the evening and just decide to read for a while in bed before I fell asleep. That's some significant trading of behaviors with just one habit change. Tally it up. Getting up at 5 a.m. causes, 1, bed earlier, 2, no boredom eating, 3, less useless TV, 4, no boredom beer, and 20 to 30 minutes of value-added reading. That's pretty good. Keystone habit. But I struggled. I had one night where I didn't get back from traveling until after midnight. I had wanted to see if I could get up at 5 a.m. anyhow, sort of test it out, but I didn't. I slept past the alarm. And then when the weekend came, I decided not to set the alarm and just wake up when my body decided to. The keystone habit kicked in again. Even though I didn't have the alarm set, I woke up early on the weekend anyhow because my system was in the habit of getting up early. In that way, the first couple weeks were a minor success. On those mornings when I did get up, I would write and create some wonderful and worthwhile content. It was very useful. I didn't use the time for running or workouts because I already have that scheduled into my day. And somewhere during this early phase, I was browsing my Amazon emails, looking for some new Kindle books, and they offered up a book called The Miracle Morning. I swear, Amazon has implemented the mind-reading algorithm. I had not written down anywhere that I was working on this 5 a.m. habit hack. But nonetheless, the great mind-reading app in the cloud 
put a book about getting up early in front of me. It was The Miracle Morning, The Not-So-Obvious Secret to Transform Your Life Before 8 a.m. by Hal Elrod, and I think it was like three bucks for the Kindle edition. So this worked out great because I already had a pilot program going that had brought many nuanced questions to the surface, and this book had my informed consent going in. Hal, who, by the way, has agreed to come on my podcast, is a character. I read this book in one plane ride. In the book, Hal puts forth a methodology he calls SAVERS, S-A-V-E-R-S, or silence, affirmation, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing. In his program, you get up early and you do all these things in sequence before you start your day. He has worksheets and examples. You can download it. And Hal has a couple cute tricks to keep you from climbing back into bed when the alarm goes off. The first one is to make sure the alarm is across the room, so you actually have to get out of bed. The second is to brush your teeth right away, so you feel like you're up. Another is to drink a big glass of water first thing, so your body starts hydrating. But you and I, being the professional habit hackers that we are, recognize these as triggers. He's driving a desired routine, and he's creating a new loop for us in the morning. And by far the most useful thing I learned from Hal's book was to set your expectations correctly the night before. I'd be setting my alarm clock and see that 5 a.m. flashing, and a silent groan and shudder would run through my body as I thought, Oh, God, 5 a.m. Instead, Hal says, you need to do a form of positive reinforcement, like an affirmation. Systematically, before you go to bed, you mentally reset to look forward to it and get excited about getting up and getting to those great things that you will get done in the morning. And again, we recognize this as a habit hack. Trigger, routine, habit. Hack it to make it work for you. I've started to use some of Hal's methodology. I'm already reading and writing and working on personal development projects, but he had some things that I'm trying out. He outlines all this in a 30-day quick start guide. Like I said, funny guy. The first thing in Hal's methodology, silence, is basically meditation. And I don't have much experience with this quieting of the mind, but I have added it to my routine to see what happens. I have previously downloaded some guided meditation from a lady called Diana Winston at UCLA, and I've been trying to use a breathing focus one, guided meditation that's about five minutes long. And what truly amazes me is how fast these five minutes go by. Quieting your mind is like time travel. The second thing is affirmation. And this can be as structured as having a stack of index cards that you read out loud with feeling every morning. And it can also be as simple as remembering all the things that you're grateful for and lucky to have. And it's a great way to start your day. The third thing is visualization. This is simply looking at your day, your week, your job, and visualizing how you want it to go. This is helpful for me if I have client engagements or other interactions where I want to preset my attitude and my approach. It's like a practice run for the things that will confront you during your day so you can get them right. The third thing in Hal's mnemonic is exercise. I think I've got that one covered, but I threw in 20 push-ups and 20 crunches just to get the blood moving in the morning. 
The next point is reading. He specifically means inspirational or self-improvement reading, and I do this already, but have tweaked my routine to take notes and create a short post from the pages I turn in the morning. And finally, he finishes with scribing, which is writing. I'm already doing this as well, but would like to get more focused on some specific projects. And after this, he leaves some blank space for you to fill in some other improvement projects or activities you might want to squeeze in at the end of your S-A-V-E-R-S. And this seems like a lot of stuff. But what I found is that you can rebalance the mix of time you spend on each to match your daily needs. And I know what you're thinking. There's no way I can squeeze all of that into a morning, no matter how early I get up. Well, it goes faster than you think. One day this week, I did all of this in addition to my morning ablutions, my email, my breakfast, letting the dog in and out a couple times, packing for a trip, packing for the gym, making a lunch, and cleaning the dishes in the sink. And when I looked up, it was only 7.30. I think this one's a keeper. And I really like getting stuff done. And now for today's featured interview. I think it's working. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. What map are you standing in front of in your photo? Um, I don't know. I was just on a business trip someplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the guy I was with take a picture in front of the map. Um, it's That's actually the avatar that I use for my um, business blog. Okay. So I wanted to sort of give the impression of, uh, you know, sort of the traveling guy. Yeah. Traveling <laughs> professional guy. Exactly. Yeah, so I used that one. I think it's it's someplace in the southeast. Yeah. If I'm remembering it correctly. I mean, <laughs> I mean in a, a car rental place, right? <laughs> cool. So uh, I do that a lot now since, you know, everybody has cameras, right? The iPhone has a camera in it. Mm-hmm. If I see something cool, I'll just take a picture because I know I'll need it later yeah. for a blog post. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so I'm just accumulating. I call it B-roll. B-roll, always important. B-roll, yep. So, uh, so Zoe Romano. Yeah. What have you been up to? Uh, running. <laughs> running a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is funny because I remember when we talked, you had done this uh, unsupported run across the United States, right? Like pushing <laughs> a, a Walmart baby carriage with your stuff in it and just sort of, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. I'm going to run across the United States. And, you know, we were talking. It's like, okay, so what do you do now? What do you do after that? Right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you follow something like that up? And it seems you found a way to do that. I saw that you were running the Tour de France. Yeah. Yeah. Took me a little while to figure out how to follow up the U.S. run, but I think I, I think I got it with the Tour de France. So tell me about that. Tell, tell me about what, how'd that go? Uh, it was, it went well. I started last year in May and I ran through the summer, finished in August. I ran a little bit more than on the U.S. run a day. I ran about 30 miles a day. It took me 10 weeks and it was amazing. I mean, the diversity of France is just crazy. You know, you think, I, I knew Paris and I knew Southern France, but you know, the tour is, it's designed to be as beautiful and as culturally interesting as possible, as difficult as possible. So it's got all these components that make it kind of like this course that someone's already laid out for you that is one of the best possible courses you could take through the country. Yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, I'm not a big bike guy, but 
if I remember correctly, it's not a like a continuous course. It's segments, and they sort of jump around. Mm-hmm. So you had to jump around when you were running then, right? You'd run a segment and then jump to the next segment? Yeah, I learned a lot in the process. So the, the route actually changes every year, and right. it sometimes goes outside of France. The year I ran last year was the 100th anniversary, so I had a couple special parts of it. And yeah, some routes, some stages will start where the previous one ended. Some will start 30 minutes away, an hour away. We had a couple big jumps, you know, where we had to drive six or seven hours. And then the tour started in Corsica. So there was also, you know, some boat rides. And I'm sure the cyclists don't do driving. I think they probably fly. But for us, yeah, it was it was some jumping around. But it was, it was really neat. And the other thing about the tour is that, like you said, the uh, the conditions are all over the place as well. And I, I would think weather-wise and, you know, you're going through all those mountains. Yeah, yeah, a lot of mountains. Um, the, they always, the number they always put out is that the elevation change is equal to three and a half Mount Everests, which is a lot of elevation change. So last year the route started in southern France. Well, it started in Corsica and then it kind of worked along the coast of southern France, then it went through the Pyrenees, um, which were just absolutely beautiful. And it had been kind of unseasonably cold and wet there, so there was like just these uh, like towering walls of snow in the mountains. Then we kind of like had to drive up to the northwest region of France and dry and run diagonally across France through the, the Loire River Valley region. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of where all, where all the castles are in France. And sure. it yeah. rained for like three weeks. It was awful. <laughs> it's <was> miserable. <laughs> Just like a cold, unending rain. And then right before the Alps, the sun came out. Things got better. I crossed the Alps, which was also unlike anything I've ever done. Then we went to Paris. I timed it so I would be in Paris a day before the cyclists finished. Uh, mm-hmm. So I watched the, the cyclists finish on the Champs-Élysées, and it was just an amazing experience. So, like, hundreds of thousands of people cheering and just madness. And then I finished my tour in Corsica, where they had done their first three stages. So I did them as my last three. You know, that's really interesting. So you managed to stay on schedule through this. What was it like? How many kilometers is that? I think it's about 3,500, so 2,000 miles. 2,000 miles of very hilly, diverse stuff. Yeah, and just, um, and you you managed to stay on schedule and show up where you needed to be at the right time and the right place at the end. I did. You know, I I worked in a couple wiggle room days, but not too too many, because I think if you leave, you know, if you give yourself too many, you'll probably take them or... It's much harder the day after a rest day to, to get going. By the end, you know, I didn't even want to take rest days because it just was miserable to have to start again. But Understood. Yeah. But, you know, there was some days where I had stopped early and then the next day was extra long or where there was like a, a couple, you know, I took two rest days in a period where I should have taken maybe three. But, yeah, it was very demanding, but I, I stayed on schedule. So tell me some of the the surprising stories around this. So you must have had some excellent adventures. So many. um, Gosh, so many. And just, you know, on a run like this, you're bound to have adventures, but add the fact that you're in a foreign country and you don't really understand how everything works. 
made for a very interesting trip. So the first day we started, uh, our luggage hadn't arrived yet because there was a strike in Paris, <laughs> which is like, you know, sort of the stereotype we always think. And it was really happening. So I started the run and it was like pouring outside and have my rain gear. And that was kind of interesting. I ran into a wild boar in the huh? very first week and in the 15 miles short of finishing the whole thing the very last day. Uh, and that was, I mean, I'm afraid of dogs. So <laughs> that was pretty frightening for me. So did the wild boar have any interest in you? I think so. The first one looked like it was going to charge at me at any moment. And I wasn't, I had my boyfriend traveling with me. was sort of like my one-man support team, and he's a filmmaker as well. But he wasn't with me either time for the boar. So, you know, I didn't hang around and see if they had any interest. I just ran away as fast as I could. That's funny. Yeah. Well, they smell fear, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what were the the mechanics or the um, the logistics around this? You said you brought your boyfriend with you. Did he, you guys just, like, rent a car and... Yeah. And go, or did you get sponsorship? Or We rented a car. We had some sponsorships. We were able to do a lot of fundraising. The charity we worked with, World's Pediatric Project, they like really stepped up as a partner, so they helped on that end. But, yeah, I mean, we, we got to France. We rented a car. I would run all day. Alex would film and, you know, get me water and food and, and visit kind of local communities and sort of like do some – some recon or some communication with locals about what the Tour de France means to them. Then we'd wrap up for the day and we would, you know, we either had local hosts that we had connected with somehow, or we would stay at hotels and kind of try and like beg our way into a discount a night or a free night, find something to eat and then, and then do it all over again the next day. So you must have had to sleep in the car a couple of nights, huh? <laughs> You know, we actually didn't. No? We had, yeah, we had thought we would have to. And, like, we had this SUV. And in the beginning, I thought, you know, that's it's a total safety net. Like, we if we can't find a place to stay, at least we have the car. But it ended up being so full of, you know, camera gear and running gear that there was there was hardly room, like, for us to sit in it. So you, what did the people you ran into think of this? You know, they really the, – the Tour de France is such a – respected institution and such a respected event in France that I think, you know, we said what we were doing when I said, you know, I'm an, an American here to run the tour. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a sign of respect, I think from us that we you know, admire the, admire the tour. And so I, I think that earned us a lot of support from the <laughs> French people. All right. Well, I can just imagine you must have had some some just like breathtaking epiphanies on some of these mornings when you got up and, you know, maybe you weren't feeling so great and you'd turn the corner in the Pyrenees and just, you know, be confronted by a vista, mm -hmm. you know, a 2,000-year-old castle or something. And oh, yeah. Must have, you, you must have been full of those kind of epiphanies for you. Absolutely, yeah. There was this um, kind of the this what really surprised me is that the, the, so the Pyrenees are sort of the first real challenge, or they were last year, and I had nothing to base my my abilities on because they're like three times as tall as the mountains I trained in in Virginia, and so I was really like anxious and like cranky and a crazy person every day in the Pyrenees, and then 
every every afternoon when I get to the top of the mountain, I would just think, you know, like I'm invincible. I I got this. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that way all the way through the Pyrenees and then I finished and then I got to the middle of France and it, you know, it's really flat and it was supposed to be easy. And I thought, you know, next two or three weeks, no problem. It's a nice break between the Pyrenees and the Alps, but it was miserable. Like I've never hated running more (laughs) in my life. Yeah. Just in the middle of France. And I guess kind of what I realized in retrospect is that it was just so boring and so flat and, really no none of these views none of the mountains none of the real like clear challenge you know just the same yeah. mile over and over and over again and plus um, you said you you had crappy weather too yeah and like yeah the rain just added to the fact and alex my boyfriend kind of like there's this big gap in his filming from the middle of france where he kind of <laughs> just kind of just stopped and you know like when your support crew is so bored that they don't even film anymore it's kind of discouraging that's funny yeah so but he could just edit that part out right so yeah there you he, go. yeah he can but i mean i just think what i sort of learned is that like the mountains and the really big challenges are not necessarily easier but they're more at least for me they're more enjoyable because they yeah you know yeah, they engage they engage your brain exactly yeah, absolutely. That's that's hilarious. Um, so, what have you been doing since then? Is there is well, is there a movie going to come out of this? Yeah, Alex is is working on a movie. Just finished up a trailer for it, and he's kind of moving oh. forward with you know seeing what's next for him on on that path. All right. So, is the movie about you or this thing? Yeah, it's it's about me. It's about you know we're we're kind of talking through the the angle we want to go with it but what we found really interesting is everyone we met had some amazing story of just kind of like going after what they wanted to go after in life and they were some really just like outstanding human stories and so you know we're kind of thinking what is the what is the foreground story and what's the background story yeah, 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 and how to tie it all together into a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you just blow me away. You just say, hey, I'm going to run across uh, France, and yeah, it's no big deal. Well, it so, was uh, it was hard. I mean, I was scared before. I was much, I felt much more vulnerable in this one than the U.S. run. Why is that? Um, I think because it was so public, like with the charity, and I had actual sponsors, and I had, I had the like, contracts, so I couldn't. I couldn't get hurt. I couldn't stop. I couldn't, you know, it had to happen. And it was just, it was harder than the U.S. run. It was, you know, more miles, more elevation, more of a schedule. It's more demanding. And so I think I felt I really put it out there. Yeah. And that, that was uncomfortable. But, you know, a little bit of pressure is good. <laughs> so how'd your uh, body hold up? Pretty good. I had, you know, a, a small injury in the beginning stayed with a local host who happened to have a chiropractor for a friend and he made like a midnight house call and came over and did some trigger point therapy on my legs. And then I had a a pretty nagging calf injury in the middle. Again, that miserable middle of France. Um, So I, I was walking for like three full days and that was 
that was pretty bad. But you know, I on a on a run like this, your body almost needs to break down so that it builds back up stronger. So yeah. I sort of anticipated that might happen. So how do you keep going? While I'm running in France yeah. or in general? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just you're out there. It's miserable. You got. 30 days ahead of you and 30 days behind you and you're hurt and it's raining and how do you keep going? Yeah. Um, you know, I honestly, this is, you know, I've given you like the three sentence version of the middle of France, but there were, you know, two or three days where I really, really didn't know. You know, I really considered stopping for a week or two or going home and coming back and, you know, I just really needed a win. I needed the sun to come out. I needed my calf to not hurt. I needed something to change. And I think getting through those days was, you know, mentally, I just didn't, I just kept stepping. I mean, running is so simple, right? You just keep taking steps and yep. you just convince yourself to do that. It's, you'll, you'll ride out that, that period. And a, a few days after those, the really sort of breaking point, the sun came out. I found 40 euro on the ground and <laughs> I got a tweet from David Ortiz. No kidding. Yeah. So all of those things happened and I was like, all right, I, I keep going now. <laughs> yeah. It's a sign. It's a sign. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I've been struggling over the last uh, couple of months and uh, the sun came out this week mm. and I got out into the woods with the dog for the first time in like six months. And I was so happy. Yeah. It's incredible what difference the sun makes. Yeah. So so what have you been doing since then? What you know, the same same question we had last time. What what uh what's next? How do you keep playing this forward? <laughs> yeah, well we're working on the film and I've helped uh with the writing aspect of it. I've been doing some other writing, a lot of speaking about the Tour de France run and you know, it's just Right now, it's kind of that sweet spot of brainstorming what's next. And, you know, hopefully this podcast works the way, the same way it did to a year or two ago when I got off, off the, the podcast with you and decided something had to be next. So. <laughs> we'll Don't blame this stuff. Don't blame this on me. You're, you're, you're an inter you're a unique individual. It has nothing to do with me. Oh, it does. I, I might be the trigger, but. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you my my uh, my question that I always ask people: What did you learn from this? Right? What were your what were your top three learning? Uh, man, I learned so much. I you know I learned I the way that we met people in France really surprised me, um, and the the people we met like we had you know we stayed with this American woman in the south of France who had left behind this big wealthy New York executive lifestyle to go become a painter in Southern France. Cause that was sort of her real dream. We stayed with a, a kid our age who had just biked from France to Estonia with his twin brother on a tandem bicycle and just all these crazy stories. So I, I, you know, long story short, sort of learned that we all have that drive or that, that sort of hunger inside of us. And there's, you, everyone has a story and there are just like these compelling, you know, tales of, of human spirit or, or passion everywhere, all over the world. Right. But you don't get to see them unless you get out there and put yourself into the milieu. Exactly. Yes. 
And I think there was something about just kind of like the the really like honest, open, you know, sometimes vulnerable way we just, you know, went to strangers and asked for help that made them, you know, took their guard down and they just shared their stories with us. Yeah, that's interesting. So any any uh, any of those uh, any of those unique stories stand out for you? Um, from the people we stayed with? Yeah. Well, there was uh, this one guy, Mark. We stayed with him in the Alps, and he's a cyclist. And he rode with me on the Alpe de Ways, the de Ways, the you know hardest climb of the tour, um, and two other really difficult climbs in the Alps. And we stayed with him, met his family, and we learned that he had just recently been in this in this accident at work. He worked at a dam, and he had touched a live wire, and it essentially, like, it destroyed his arm, like, blew up his arm. And the doctor said, you know, you'll probably never bike again. You don't have, like, you can't use your hand, and you can't use your thumb, and it's, I don't know how you would keep biking like you're used to. And... Like six months after the doctor told him this, he biked across the southwest United States alone. He was back biking with us in the Alps a a few months after that trip. And he just was like the most compassionate, sweetest guy. And we, he didn't even really, you know, we, we spoke in very broken English and French and it's still such a strong connection. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you don't need words. Exactly. Yeah. So that's great. That's great. And and I, I can just feel and I can hear how much more enriched your life is and how you're a different person now than you were the last time we talked. Oh, thank you. I hope hope I've grown a little. So we got to see, you know, this, this is a hard act to uh, keep getting <laughs> forward. Yeah, I know. I got to. We'll see. We'll see. So. All right. Um, any uh, any links that you have um, that you want to uh, share? Um, sure. Maybe the web website and the, and Twitter, I guess. Yeah. Give it to me. The website is zoegoesrunning.com. And it's Zoe mm-hmm. goes running all one word. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Facebook page is Zoe goes running. And your Twitter handle is? Is Zoe Romano. Zoe Romano. Okay. And so is that trailer out? Did you put it on YouTube? Well, no, we're we're trying to figure out if we might be using it to help crowdfund the film. So we're, uh, we're figuring out what it literally was just finished a couple of days ago. So if it, if we yeah. do put it up, though, when is the podcast coming out? Oh, well, this will be two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. Okay, well, if we, you know, we should make that decision soon. So if we do just, like, put it out there, we'll, I'll send you the link. Yeah, and if you have a uh, Kickstarter... Um, at that point, you can give me that too. Absolutely. We'll we'll pass that around. All right. Cool. All right. Well, this has been a pleasure talking to you. For me as well. I'm gonna go home tonight and patch the back tire on my mountain bike and go for a ride. There you go. Sounds good. All right. All right. All right see you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. My Boston Marathon routine, it's really nothing special. I think we all get lost in the grandiose fluffery of the Boston Marathon, especially this year. 
I thought it might be interesting to tell you how I usually spend my weekend, give you some perspective. So let's start with Friday. Usually Friday, I'm either just returned from a trip or flying back from somewhere. Either way, I have stuff to do and don't feel like trucking into the city to visit the expo. Friday is usually my last token workout before the race. Traditionally, I'll do a short two to four mile tune-up run with a nice fast close to burn off some adrenaline. Friday night, I'll start to cut back on calories and try to keep from getting too bloated going into the race. And I'll try to eat lightly and eat something easily digestible with some carbohydrates. Saturday morning, I'll get up and do my normal Saturday chores in the morning. These are things like laundry and cleaning and trash. I'll stay away from anything strenuous involving heavy lifting. And I'll start thinking about the stuff I have to pull together for the race. At some point in the late morning, I'll drive into the Alewife Tea Station in Cambridge. I do this because no one in their right mind would drive a car into Boston, especially on Marathon Weekend. If you add a parcel of clueless out-of-staters to the normal crazies, and traffic is going to be a nightmare. Even if you manage to get into the Heinz in one piece, you'll discover that parking, if you can find it, is $40 an hour. So I avoid all that, and I jump on the red line in Cambridge. I ride the train into the North Station and take the green line out to the Peru. It's fun to ride the train and see all the competitors milling about. When my kids were younger, they used to go to the expo with me, and it was like Christmas for them with all the vendors and food and commotion. I'll go to the expo in the Heinz, pick up my packet. I love the part where the volunteers ask if I've ever run the race before, and I can smile and say yes. I'll usually wear an old race shirt or one of my old race jackets just to show the colors, I'll bring a bottle of water with me so I can stay hydrated. I'll walk the floor of the expo, saying hi to the vendors I know and generally acting like an affable smartass. I might nibble on one of the energy bars or sample the treats. I'll take some pictures or maybe even some video. I usually try to buy something, usually a racing hat, just to have a memento of the race for later years. Sometimes... There is a meetup of some sort, but usually after an hour or so, I make my way back out of town. It's usually mid-afternoon when I get home, and I'll take the dog for a long walk to burn off some energy, and I'll eat a light meal, and I'll head to sleep. At some point over the weekend, I'll get to the massage therapist's place of business and pick up her tables for use in the after-race hotel room my club sponsors. Since I'm Mr. Frequent Flyer, I book a room for Monday night and set up and organize the whole thing. I'll drop the tables and a bag of clean clothes off with the other members of my club who have volunteered to set up the room and meet the massage therapist. On Monday morning, they will get into town early, use my influence with the Marriott to check in early, and hopefully get a a room upgrade, and shuttle a bunch of stuff up to the room. They meet the massage therapist, they bring up the tables, they bring up coolers of food and drinks, they raid the hotel's linens for piles of extra towels and ice, they make ready for us who will be limping in exhausted and elated later in the day. We won't know the room number. When we leave Hockington, we will go to the lobby and ask for a name, call up and have someone tell us the room number and let us in. Saturday night and Sunday, I really don't do much. I laze around... I read the newspaper, I do light chores, 
I put my stuff together for the race, putting the bib number on my racing singlet and making sure everything fits. I'll dress for the race and then remove everything and lay it out in situ for the next morning. I don't go to any of the Saturday or Sunday events or pasta dinners or any of that stuff. It's too much of a hassle to get in and out of the city, and it would just be a big waste of energy. I don't have any trouble sleeping on Sunday night. I just go to bed early or maybe read a little, then fall asleep. Monday morning, I get up, maybe around 6 o'clock a.m., and get ready. I'll start my coffee and oatmeal, and I'll sit in front of the TV and massage my legs with Flexol preheat and stretch a little to get the blood flowing. I'll put on my race gear and old sweats over that to be discarded at the start. Now this year will be different, but in previous years I would pack my check bag with stuff for the morning in Hopkinton. Things like a trash bag to sit on and all those other sundries. These we would shove into a school bus window according to our bib number as we made our way to the starting corrals to be picked up again after the finish downtown. This year there will be no bags. Sometime around 7.30 a.m., I'll catch a ride with one of my clubmates to be ferried out to Hopkinton. It's about a 20-minute ride up the highway. We get off at the Hopkinton exit heading north away from the start. There's an office park there where you can be dropped off to catch a bus in the Hopkinton. We'll usually take some pictures, use the porta-potties, and joke around with the other nervous runners. There are usually two sets of buses. One line of buses is the shuttle onlookers down into downtown Hopkinton and the finish line. The other is to shuttle the athletes out to Athletes Village at the Hopkinton High School. I typically get on the other one, the one going downtown with the sightseers, because I find that the athlete buses take a roundabout route to the back of the school and it takes forever. It's easier to take the direct bus to the starting line on a nice morning, you can check out the corrals, and there's a couple of hundred brand new portageons near the start that you can take your pick of, and then it's a leisurely stroll up the hill about a quarter mile to the high school. The Hopkinton High School, the Athletes Village, it's a mob scene with loud music and thousands of people milling about, and if the weather's bad, it's a quagmire. <laughs> and we usually stay away from the commotion and find a quiet corner of the field to do our final stretching and prep. And we try to time our last visit to the Portageon lines correctly. As the waves are called, we say our goodbyes and we make our way back down the hill to our spots. Somewhere up ahead, there's announcers and singers and such stuff, but back in the corrals, we can't hear any of it. We tell jokes and nervously shift our weight until the ropes are pulled and the thousand runners in our corral surge forward to merge with the thousand runners ahead and behind. At some point, we start to surge forward, and I walk because I'm familiar with the start-stop cadence of a big race. At the top of the hill, we wave to the news cameras and are set free to face our lot like those famous men and women who have trod this ground before us for more than a hundred years. At the end of a normal Boston Marathon... I'll collect my bag and make my way over to the hotel. I'll take some photos at the finish and try to start drinking some water if I can keep it down. I'll try to help the sick, wounded, and lost as much as I can, but we all stumble forward and are vomited out in a great, smelly, tired sea of shiny blankets into the family reunion area. As soon as I can find a break in the fences, I push through the crowds and grope my way towards the hotel. 
At this point in the day, the sea breeze through the buildings is starting to be chilly, and we make a sorry sight clutching our space blankets and bags of miscellany. We nod to each other in solemn congratulations. The tourists wish us well and part for us as we stumble down the sidewalks. Occasionally you'll see a runner down on the sidewalk, ashen and sick with the delayed exhaustion setting in. They can carry on no farther. Their families minister to them and keep them warm. Sometimes I'll sit on a ledge or pause to lean on a wall. We all approach curbing as if it is the Great Wall of China, other flanks of Everest waiting to be scaled. In the hotel lobby, I ironically ask for my own name and call up to the room. We enter the club room to the warm cheers of our faster mates and proffered succor of the volunteers. We tell our story and compare notes. We sit and eat and drink. We get a massage and take the best shower of the year, not necessarily in that order. Later, as the sun is dropping low behind the cityscape and the stragglers lurch down Boylston, I make my way to the Green Line and head back out to Elwife to meet my wife for dinner or head to the airport for my next gig. Wherever I travel, for the next 24 hours, I will have a proud unicorn strung around my neck and peeking out of my jacket. And kind people will ask me if I've won. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. It snowed on me this week, in Chicago, and then again in Detroit, and it finally followed me home, to lay another inch or so of hard, icy stuff on my home and my car and my driveway in Massachusetts. It was in the 20s, with snow on the ground, when I woke up. A couple days in a row for me. That's just not right in the middle of April. I had to go down and do my run on the treadmill Tuesday. I had no idea that it would be that cold when I, when I packed my running stuff. This weather has been something this year. Like I said last week, I've been focusing on just getting a little bit stronger. Since the Umstead Marathon, not the really long one, the 26.2 mile one, since that marathon, which I ran at the beginning of March, I've had about eight weeks, and my ankle is almost healed, but it's still lurking there. I can still feel it. I did something to a ligament in there in December. I've been running on it. <laughs> I haven't been doing a speed work and I didn't get much volume in. I've limited my running to three days a week, and so over the last two or three weeks, I've been able to get out in the woods with Buddy, and our buddies, our minds, and our souls have very much appreciated that change. I've been doing an abs, shoulders, back, and arms workout on Mondays. I've been doing a solid leg strength workout on Wednesdays. I've been spinning on the stationary bike Friday nights with some core thrown in, and I've been getting 1,250 meters in the pool every Saturday morning. And I've been at it fairly consistently. I should have some core strength built up and maybe a little healing. I've also been focusing on stretching. Interestingly enough, I developed that same back pain over the last couple of weeks that I had for last year's marathon. I went to the Cairo, and he said it's just that muscle that runs down from my clavicle to the middle of my back. 
and it hurts when I stop to walk and then start running again. And it's because when I run, I'm upright, my hands high, run tall. That form actually makes it hurt because it's scrunching up the, the back muscle in the back. But as long as I know it's just a pulled muscle of some sort, I can just ignore it and take the pain. Uh, the week after, next week is a Groton Road Race, and we've got everything lined up and sorted out for the most part. Registration is off a bit, and I think it's because the weather was so bad for so long up here. We made some improvements this year. We have gender-specific shirts for the women, because even though our art is fantastic, the women don't like those generic-shaped t-shirts. I'm quite looking forward to summer. I plan to take some time off from running to get my body healthy, and then we'll see what I feel like doing. I need a, I need a new adventure, something that challenges me and fulfills me. I'm thinking about relocating and spending some extended time down at my house on Cape Cod because I can work from anywhere really. I need to recharge my batteries and refind myself after this long year. Is your life meaningful? How much of your day do you spend doing work that's important and meaningful to you? If today were the last day of your life, would you do what you have planned to do today? Perhaps you would. But you wouldn't go through it like a mindless robot. You would try to live this day and do this work with purpose. What's stopping you from doing that today? Regardless of what you have on the schedule, what you choose to do and how you choose to do it matters. You've got choices. You could continue along, continue this day and do it like you would have if I, if you and I hadn't had this conversation. You could come to the realization that you have a day plan that's not the one you would have chosen in your right mind, and you can choose to do something else. Or you can look at your day and decide to use your unique gifts, because you have some. Use those gifts to make whatever you do today special and meaningful for whatever it is you do. You've got nothing to lose. Today may or may not be the last day of your life, but either way, we are all going to die, and this life will be over before you know it, and today is really all you have. Your life is a series of todays that you need to make special and meaningful to you and the people you live with. What about the job and the mortgage and the family and the adult responsibilities? You don't have to pack up your rucksack and wander off to live with the Sherpas in Nepal. But you don't have to just show up either. Today is an opportunity to change only one thing, the way you approach that work and life. This is completely under your control. Approach today's mundane task with gratitude and, dare I say it, love. Make these tasks meaningful to you, and you will notice something amazing and fulfilling happening. You will notice that they become fulfilling to those others that you interact with. Your purpose and intent will spread with a warm glow into your circle of influence. Another wonderful symptom of making today meaningful is that it will open up access within you to your unique gifts, your strengths, will come to the surface in response to your meaningful and grateful approach to life. Those things that make you special, that have been hiding like a scared bunny under the desk, 
in the routine of life will start to blossom. Make today meaningful. If you want to follow me in the big circus, my number is 25840-25840, and I'm in wave three, Corral 8. You shouldn't have any problem because I'll be out there for a long time. So that's it. We'll chat again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. I know. Oh, yeah.